Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When I go to Worldview Academy, I mainly teach high school students. Occasionally through Worldview, speak to college students. And there was a period in time, and I think we're past it, but there was a, a period in time when every time we had like a guest speaker come in or someone come to audition or whatever, they were always talking about the same thing. They were educating the young people on the evils of postmodernism. Maybe you've heard about the evils of postmodernism yourself. If I were to ask you to take out a sheet of paper and list some of the evils of postmodernism, however, that might be more difficult because you've probably picked up on the fact that, that for every person who talks about it, there seems to be a different definition of what it is. So it can be difficult to uh, point out, which is fun if you know in advance because it gives you the opportunity to skewer the teacher with well-aimed questions. So I would suggest... Anytime someone gets up to, to lecture you on the evils of postmodernism, you should raise your hand and say, oh, this is fascinating. Could you briefly explain to me the difference between postmodernism and modernism? And they'll say, well, post means after. It comes after. Next question. But it'll be hard to distinguish between the two, and, and you will feel a sense of triumph. But don't try that on me, because I've got an answer to it. I'm going to share the answer with you now. There is... There's more than one way, but I'm going to share with you what I think is a really good way to distinguish between the two, especially when it comes to art. If you're thinking about your favorite books or your favorite movies, entertainment, that sort of thing, um, especially if you've been liking this stuff for a while, long enough to see changes in themes and, and attitudes in movies and books, you'll be aware of a difference. And it's a difference concerning the attitude towards the death of God. Remember, Friedrich Nietzsche declared, God is dead and we have killed him. He, of course, did not mean that God had been physically killed. He didn't believe there was a God. He was talking about the idea of God. We've, we've killed the idea of God essentially by growing up. We no longer need a, a mythological figure in the sky to explain the world to us because now we have science. We understand things in a more sophisticated way. So God is dead because we've uh, matured. The problem is the death of God brings with it the end of some other things as well. Uh, for example, uh, the sense of innate meaning in the world. So in modernism, where you see artists struggling with the idea that there is no God, the death of God, the absence of God is a trauma. Right? It's, it's, it's this horrible reality that you have to come to terms with. And as a result, it's pretty bleak. There's this sense of the meaninglessness of things. Uh, modernist movies, you know, people give kind of depressing dialogues as they wear black turtlenecks and smoke French cigarettes and talk about the meaninglessness of everything. Later, though, in, in postmodern times, people have grown accustomed to the idea. They still believe in the death of God. It's just not a trauma anymore. It's just the way things are. So if you talk about the meaninglessness of the world... Uh, people these days are like, mm, yeah, of course it's meaningless. Of course there's no like, like transcendent meaning to any of it. The only meaning or purpose there is is what you make for yourself. That's just the way it is. 
and we're not worked up about it. That difference in attitudes towards the death of God, it's really a difference in the experience of alienation. As human beings, we have this sense of alienation or apartness, that there's something living and vital and whole that we're meant to be a part of, but for whatever reason, we are separate from it. We're cut off from this thing that we should be organically tied to. We feel alienated, but, but that feeling of alienation changes in history. It used to be that people understood the source a lot better than we do now. We were alienated from ourselves and from our fellow human beings because there was no God anymore, no meaning, no basis for morality. So we knew what the problem was, even though it was unsolvable. Over time, our sense of alienation has grown. People aren't less alienated than they were in the past. They're more alienated in in a variety of ways But our sense of the reason or the source of that alienation has been blunted. We no longer have a sense that that it's the the death of God, the absence of God or transcendent meaning that, that, that results in the feeling of alienation that we have because that doesn't really make sense because the alienation is huge. What we feel is is real and all pervasive, whereas to us the idea of God is small. It doesn't make sense that not believing in an ancient myth would result in real consequences like the pervasive alienation that we see all around us. And so we find ourselves more plunged in in the depths of the alienation, less able to see what its causes are. For a Christian, you could look at this situation and see in this a kind of opening because the gospel promises an end to alienation. When people have a sense of alienation, that's a sense you can speak into with grace. It doesn't have to be this way. This estrangement, this being cut off from what you were meant to be, it doesn't have to be like that. The gospel promises the end of alienation, and the word for that is reconciliation. What ends alienation, the separation, is reconciliation, bringing the parties together, repairing the damage. And that word reconciliation is such a good gospel word that you can use it as a summary for the whole of the gospel. Paul does this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When he's talking about the gospel as a ministry of reconciliation, he gives what uh, my former Baptist self would recognize as an altar call at the end of that. It is an appeal to faith, to take action. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In fact, the very first time I was asked to go and speak to people and, and to share the gospel with them, that's the passage that I spoke from. That's the passage that I used. And it was phenomenally ineffective, as many first attempts often are. But to me, it seemed amazing. Like that the gospel is all about reconciliation. It's about ending the alienation. But there's a need to be careful with that idea. Because when we think of alienation, and the way I've been speaking about alienation, it's mainly a feeling that we have. We feel alienated. 
And when you think about the gospel as a promise of reconciliation, but reconciling and, and like ending a feeling of alienation, what it sounds like we're saying is you should trust Jesus so that you will not feel alienated anymore. Trust Jesus and you won't feel so bad. You will feel better. And uh, not only is this not the point Paul is making, but it's actually totally false. It is not true that you can trust Jesus and feel better about things. In fact, oftentimes, by trusting Jesus, you will feel worse. Because not only will you have all of the alienation that comes from being a sinful human being in a fallen world, and now having a new consciousness of the holiness of God, but also you'll have a new alienation you have separated yourself from your fellow human beings by believing in something that the culture as a whole has moved on from. So I never want you to think the promise of the gospel is that you'll feel better. You won't feel so cut off from the rest of the world. That's not what Paul means when he encourages us, implores us to be reconciled to God. For Paul, alienation isn't a feeling. It is an objective reality. He's not referring to a sense of alienation. He's referring to a real alienation, a real distance that exists in the real world between us and the God who made us. The feeling is just a symptom of the reality. We feel estranged because we actually are. And the solution is not to feel differently about that situation. The solution is to change it to end that distance. Scripture is not saying Jesus will make you feel better about your situation. The Gospel is saying Jesus will change your situation by ending your alienation. The problem is, though, our alienation, it promotes self-absorption. Suffering of any kind has a tendency to do this. When I'm in pain, I'm thinking about my pain. I'm not thinking about your pain. Like if, if someone just chopped off your arm, but, but I was just bitten by a mosquito, look, I was bitten, and it hurt. You know, there's a sense of proportion that we lose when we're cocooned inside our own suffering. And alienation is funny because it's mental, and, and ironically can, can lead to more self-absorption than physical suffering can. And as a result of that, when we are alienated, it tends to be our own alienation that we focus on. The more we feel alienated, the less sense we have of the alienation of other people. The only alienation we can perceive is our own. This is why you'll see this in in the world of politics today over and over again. Extreme partisans always believe that the other side is in control and winning, that everything is going right for them and everything is a struggle for me. You can walk into any coffee shop in Sioux Falls and gather a random group of people and you will find some of those people who who will tell you that we are living in this godless environment where we are one step away from Christians being bused to the United Nations concentration camps. And the next person will tell you we are living in a handmaid's tale patriarchy where we're about to round up all the women and put them back in chains. And it's the same world that they're looking at. And you're like, what? Now, if you're on one of those two sides, you're like, well, yeah, they're right and they're wrong. But if you're standing outside and you're looking at this, you realize there's a lot of alienation. There's enough to go around. 
And, and as a result, it's hard for us to perceive what's going on with other people. Because we're so wrapped up in our own sense of alienation. That's also the reason why, by the way, the best medicine for your sense of alienation is service. Because selfless service, self-sacrifice, when you serve selflessly, that action encourages self-forgetfulness. People who are focused as a rule on the needs of others, on serving the needs of others, are less in touch with their own sense of alienation. So there's this practical benefit to a life of service. It gives you a better sense of the situation that other people find themselves in. It gives you a sense of concern for their suffering that transcends, in some cases, your own. So yes, sin results in alienation. Because we are sinners, we are alienated from the God who made us. We're alienated from one another. We're even alienated from ourselves. That's all good as far as it goes. But there's a significant alienation that we tend to be blind to. We never think about it. And Paul is pointing it out to us here. It is God's alienation from sinners. God's alienation from sinners. The distance between a holy God and his sinful creatures is a mighty gulf of real, objective alienation. We think, okay, I'm a sinner. I have changed in relation to God. But God hasn't changed in relation to me. God is still looking down at me the same way. God is like a neutral observer. Whether I'm sinful or obedient, God doesn't take any notice. God just always looks in the same way. But this is not the way that God reveals Himself to be in Scripture. In fact, sin has changed how God relates to us by creating an alienation between the holy Creator and the unholy creature. Because of that, another kind of reconciliation is necessary. So yes, there's a call to us to be reconciled to God, but there is also another reconciliation that must be effected before Paul gives that charge to be reconciled to God in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So there is a subjective call to be reconciled to God. But before that, God does an objective work of reconciliation on the cross. The cross reconciles objectively so that we can be called subjectively to be reconciled to God by trusting in that work on the cross. Our assurance and our certainty do not come, in other words, from our posture towards God. Any assurance and certainty that we can have comes from God's posture towards us. And that posture, as we saw last week, is expressed by God, above all else, in the cross of Jesus Christ. He has shown us His love in the cross. Now, Paul is making this 
point is a kind of sophisticated argument. He's saying if all this is true, then there's something else that is even more true. If the death of Christ on the cross has reconciled us, then the life of Christ will certainly save us. This is where we begin to see the connection between Romans 5 and Romans 1. So there are a couple of pieces of evidence here that you should take a look at. So first, in verse 9, Paul refers to salvation from the wrath of God. Now remember when that wrath was introduced, that was all the way back in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the problem of wrath is the way that Paul introduces the sin situation. Because of sin, the wrath of God has been revealed against all of it. And now what he's saying in Romans 5 is here's the answer. He's summing up the solution that salvation from wrath is possible, and that comes through Christ. And he refers to Christ here in verse 10 in a way that he hasn't done since the very opening of Romans 1. He refers to Jesus as the Son of God, which he does three times early in Romans 1 by way of introduction, and doesn't do it again. Remember, he doesn't mention Jesus at all until like in Romans 2, after he's gone through this long uh, list of sins. So he introduces Jesus, and now he brings back this idea of Jesus as the Son whose work on the cross reconciles us to the Father. So it's all coming together here. Ever since Romans 17, the verse right before the wrath was spoken of, the theme has been justification. The just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. We've seen in chapter 2 the effects of sin, and starting in chapter 3 and going into chapter 4, justification. And that justification comes not through works of the law, but through faith. It comes through faith. Now the question is, if you have justification, what does that mean exactly? What is that good for? How far does justification get you, in other words? That's what's being addressed here. And the answer is, it gets you all the way. If you have justification, then you will certainly have everything that follows after it. Because that justification came to you while you were an enemy. God reconciled us to him through the cross while we were his enemies, while we were estranged from him. And if that's true, now that we are his adopted heirs, how much more should we expect the salvation that has been promised? Now, he says, because of the death of Christ, we have reconciliation with God. We have that justification. And he speaks of it as a past tense thing. It's the reason why when we talk about justification, we talk about it as a moment in time, you know, a point on your timeline. You were not justified and then you were justified, not as an ongoing process or act. Uh, justification involves a declaration. You can almost picture like a courtroom environment where, where a declaration of justice or righteousness is being made according to faith and not works. That's past tense, and it happened when we were estranged from God, when we were his enemies. It wasn't done because of any merit that we possessed. The opposite, we were actively uh, accruing demerit, not merit, if that makes sense. 
So the point is, God steps into our stories when we are completely estranged to him, when we are doing nothing to contribute to it, and he reconciles us through the cross. And if that's true of the effectiveness of the death of Christ, then the life of Christ will surely save us from God's wrath on the day of judgment. We shall be saved by Jesus' life. So there's a couple of observations that I think are worth making here. Um, Justification and reconciliation are things that for Paul have already happened. They reflect a change of status. Like we have changed in the eyes of God. We're now being regarded not on our own merit, but on the merits of Christ. And sometimes we talk about that as salvation. And that's not wrong to say, but the term salvation is pretty flexible in the way that New Testament authors use it. So here, it's really clear that justification and reconciliation are past tense events Paul's saying, because of what has happened, we can be certain of what will happen. Because of this one-time event, we can be certain of the future. And yet, the thing we're certain of is that we will be saved. So we're talking about a future salvation. Right now, we sometimes will talk about salvation and say something like, uh, did you get saved? And the implication is that if you prayed the prayer and you were reconciled to God, right, you were justified, that, that that's a done deal. Like, that's, that's all done. And there's a sense in which that's so. But there's another sense in which it begins a process of salvation. Not us saving ourselves, but God saving us step by step. Justification is one of those things. Uh, sanctification is another one. Sanctification is not... Uh, After God does the work of salvation, we keep it through obedience, and that's sanctification. No, sanctification is still God saving us by his grace, and it keeps going all the way to the end. The escape from the wrath on the day of judgment, that's by grace, and it will surely be the case that those who are justified will be spared that judgment and will be glorified in the new heaven and the new earth. That's the argument that's being made. There is a certainty that goes along with what has already happened that means you can look into the far future with assurance, understanding that it will be so. And it's okay for us to speak in these uh, fluid ways, using the terms the way that Scripture uses them, even though it's also important to sometimes make the distinctions as well. There is a question, I think, that that emerges from this idea of Christ's life saving us, which is, what does that mean exactly? In what sense does the life of Christ save us? And there's actually more than one answer to this. So I mentioned already, starting in verse 12 and running through the end of the chapter, there's a famous passage comparing the work of Adam and the work of Christ. And in that passage, the, the sense in which the life of Christ saves us will have to do with, with the imputed righteousness of Christ. That because of Adam's sin, there's an imputation of sin. Sin is credited, so to speak, to all those who are in Adam. Because of Christ's righteousness, his righteousness is attributed or credited to all those who are in Christ. But that's not really the sense that Paul seems to be speaking of here. 
when he says that, that Christ's life will save us, he seems to be thinking more of the resurrection. So that death to life contrast that he uses elsewhere. The death of Christ on the cross and the resurrection of Christ that left behind the empty tomb. Because remember for Paul, the Christian hope is bodily resurrection. Like what we look forward to in the future is not that one day we'll die, our spirits will leave our bodies, and we will go be disembodied spirits floating on the clouds, strumming harps in heaven for eternity. Instead, what Paul looks forward to is a day when after that intermediate state, which separates body and soul, there will be a bodily resurrection where spirit and body will be reunited, uh, made different spiritual bodies, transformed, but still human, human, to live in the new heaven and the new earth. And the life of Christ, in the sense of Christ's resurrection, is our guarantee that we too will live. This is the reason why Christ is referred to by Paul as the first fruits of the dead. He's the first to be resurrected. He's the one who shows the way, but what happened to him will happen to us as well in time. But of course, there's something else about the life of Christ that's significant here, which is what he does with it now. Not just what he did on earth, his active and passive obedience, which is imputed to us, but also what he continues to do, seated at the right hand of the Father, which is to make intercession for us. So the living Christ, the Son of God, continues to represent our interests in the presence of the Father. Because of that, Paul is saying, we have a certainty of salvation. We talked before about the fact that that not everyone has the same certainty, the same sense of assurance. Right? Some of us struggle more than others to believe that, that God loves us and that we, our salvation is real, that sort of thing. Now, those are subjective feelings, and the Westminster Confession says that God does grant assurance, but it's not so connected to salvation that a person who doesn't have it should suspect that they are not saved. And it's the subjective feeling part. What Paul's talking about here is the objective reality part, and that's where we place our confidence. Day to day, your confidence, my confidence, is not in how good we're doing. It's not in how much we believe, how strongly we trust. That confidence to have any value needs to be in Christ. Not only in Christ and the work he did on the cross, but as we see here, Christ and the life he lives now in the presence of the Father, making intercession for us. He will save his people is to doubt that he will form the work that he lives to do at the right hand of the Father. The thing about reconciliation, though, when we talk about reconciliation, you have to realize that reconciliation is not the work of the one who did the wrong. Oftentimes we think it is. Like you've done something wrong, you need to be reconciled. It's up to you to bring about that reconciliation. But if you've ever had someone uh, hurt you, break your heart, do something horrible to you, realize what a bad thing they've done and then try to force reconciliation on you, you know how that goes. Right? It, it, it exacerbates the, defense, the, the offense of, of the act. Right? If you commit the crime, you lose the power to affect the reconciliation. Like you can't implore it on your behalf. It's the work of the one to whom the wrong was done. 
only God, when it comes to the estrangement between creator and creature, only God can do that work because it's against God that the wrong was done. For those of you who can remember far enough back in history to the fall of apartheid in South Africa, you may remember there was a period of time, sort of transitionally, there was a process that took place called truth and reconciliation. And it was kind of an unusual and, and hopeful picture of what a transformation or a handoff in power can look like. Because typically the way handoffs look or revolutions look is just bloodletting. Right? The old order is overcome and destroyed and the new order suppresses it and takes power. But in South Africa, something different happened. It wasn't perfect. Uh, there are still things people can look back on and say it should have gone differently. But there was an attempt to, to walk through that process differently. And it involved bringing out the truth of the crimes that had been perpetrated in order to effect reconciliation between those who had done the injustice and those who had had those injustices afflicted upon them. But the burden wasn't on those who had done the wrong to drive the process. Only those who had received the wrong could do that. And it was their willingness to do it their willingness to be reconciled. Not, not truth and justice, not truth and revenge, but truth and reconciliation. That was the thing that was inspiring to see for people around the world, that such a thing was possible. I think those two ideas go hand in hand, truth and reconciliation. We may crave reconciliation, but oftentimes not at the expense of having to confront truth especially if it means confronting the truth of who and what we are. But there can be no real reconciliation without an honest reckoning. The grace in gospel reconciliation, and really in all reconciliation, if you think about it, the grace is when one who has every right to refuse to come to the table, not only comes to the table, but sets the table. And when you see that being done by your fellow human beings, it's inspiring. And you want to be like that. When you see it being done by God, it was anything but deserving of the offense. When God not only is willing to be reconciled to us, to meet us at the table, but He sets it. And not only sets it, not only issues the invitations, but but draws us to Him sees every obstacle in the path, every single reality that would keep us from the table, and He overcomes them for us. That's more than inspiring. That's unbelievable. It's incredible. It's what God has done. What He calls us to have faith in. The burden of reconciliation never falls on the victim. It, 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 it falls on the victim in only in the sense that it, the victim, by virtue of the offense, gains the power to offer reconciliation. God doesn't reconcile us because we've asked him to, or because he senses how willing we are. He doesn't reconcile us because he knows that, that we'll deserve it at some point. Paul insists that it happens when we are his enemies. It happens when there's nothing in us to think that this is a good idea. I think 
a lot of our alienation as Christians, a lot of our anxiety about what God has promised, a lot of our anxiety about salvation comes precisely from the fact that we know how much his enemies we are, even now. How much we struggle, how much we struggle, though he has objectively closed the gap that we still rebel against it and against him leading us to minimize our sin to the point of denying it entirely is something we do really well these days. We recategorize, reclassify, redefine everything so that, that nothing really is sinful anymore. Or if we can't bring ourselves to do that, we start exaggerating our role in our reconciliation. We start seeing salvation as a thing that God is graciously doing and we are right there with him doing it too. We are helping him at every step of the way. When it comes down to it, we're just telling ourselves, I know I will be saved because of what I've done. What I've deserved, what I've cooperated with, what I've agreed to, whatever it is, because of what I've done, I will be saved. Scripture says it doesn't work that way and never could. You could never do any of it. God had to do all of it. And you're looking in the wrong place for assurance if you're looking at yourself. If the Father sent the Son to shed His blood on the cross, justifying and reconciling us through His death, while we were still His enemies, then it's nothing short of foolish to think that now that we are His adopted heirs, anything at all could derail the salvation that He has for us. Nothing can stop Him from doing what He has already begun. You have been reconciled to God by Christ's death so that you can rejoice in Christ's life. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.